Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. I strenuously object. A legal podcast brought to you by the Pittsburgh Law Firm of Flaherty Fardo is now in session. All those seeking information about the law and legal matters affecting the people of Pittsburgh and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, half-baked opinions, and a dose of self-indulgence are invited to attend and participate. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I object, Your Honor. Your Honor, I object. You would! Listen, we don't know you. We don't know who you are. We don't know what you do. So please do not rely on anything we say as legal advice. I'm Noah Fardo, presiding. My wingman, attorney Bill Rigel. And all we're trying to do is bring a little irreverence. That's just what this stubby company needs. A little irreverence. Well, let's start the insanity. Call the first witness. Today on I Strenuously Object, I am strenuously objecting to not getting paid when people owe me money. You agree? That is a fine, fine subject of objection. So today sustained. Sustained. What we're gonna do today is we're gonna show me the money. Show me the money. Show me the money! Because we're gonna teach people that when you're owed money, there are ways to collect. Business bad, you pay me. Oh, you had a fire? You pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? You pay me. In my experience, about half the people who are owed money collect and about half don't. Your experience? Yeah, I've I've never tried to calculate it, but, you know, everything's 50-50, right? Either it is or it isn't. And uh, I don't know. What I do know is when I first started with you, uh, goodness, what is that, 16 years ago now? Um, One of the ways you had described a thing that set us apart as a practice is, you know, that there tend to be people who handle getting you the judgment and there tend to be people who handle collecting money after a judgment, but a lot of attorneys don't do both and certainly aren't, uh, you know, sufficiently experienced in both. And we get a lot of cases from other attorneys, other law firms who've obtained a judgment, but haven't turned that judgment into money. Um, And they reach out to us uh, to go try to collect it for them. Yep. Bringing, bringing home the bacon. So what we're going to teach people today is when you're owed money, whether somebody owes you or whether you want a lawsuit and need to collect, um, your company's owed money, your business is owed money, what do you need to do? And, you know, this started, like you said, many years ago, and I was real into the internet then and wrote an article on the five best steps on how to collect debt in Pennsylvania. You know, what are the five best things you need to do to collect money that's owed? And this article, I don't want to say it went viral, but it went 1,000, 1,500 views a month for over a decade. So over 100,000, 150,000 people have read this article. And we get calls, two, three calls a week still every week from this old article. So I want to expand on that and even get into some of the finer points today. Hey, give the people uh, what they want. Yeah. So- you know, a couple of things about debt collection cases in general that are really good, just a preliminary advice. You can never prejudice a debt collection case. Those people who think they're going to get paid sometimes don't. The people who don't think they're going to get paid, get paid, right? And at the end of this, because producer Mike said we need a hook, I will give the best single advice ever for collecting debt, something that people don't do that will collect more money and collected what? $100,000 for us last month, right? A trick of the trade. 
Now that's so, what I call a hook. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. So never prejudice a debt collection case and be nice. Okay, ho- hold on, hold on. What, what do you mean never prejudice a debt collection case? Those words are weird to me. Well, <laughs> never prejudice meaning don't think you're going to get paid or not going to get paid. You simply don't know if you're going to get paid until you do what is necessary. That makes sense? It does make sense. Okay. So and yeah, it's, it's, it's worth noting. You, can't, you cannot judge these things by the appearances of who seems to have money or who seems not to have money um, because that is not necessarily a useful guide as to whether or not a debt is collectible. People with lots of money may have that money well hidden or put in places where you can't collect it. People who don't necessarily seem to have a lot of money may end up coming into money later or having assets that you wouldn't think about or notice um, offhand, but are collectible assets. Um, So generally, if the judgment was worth getting, it's at least worth poking around at the possibilities of collecting on it. Don't just assume it is true that you can't get blood from a stone, but you may not always know who's a stone and who's not. That's right. That's right. And I mean, if you want to collect debt, the key is understanding how you apply pressure. Under pressure. Right. And why I phrased this episode, hey, you pay me um, is because those tricks of the trade and that attitude and that mentality and going after that money owed for your client. You know, it's a big difference on who you hire. And that's just the reality of it. You agree? I do. Now, early on, when I tell clients and we get a lot of consults, hey, is this collectible? Is this not collectible? Hold on. We can't prejudice it. I don't know. I can tell you there's things we can do to help you to find out. Um, but be nice, be nice. Let the person want to work with you and pay you. I always love when debtors, debtors are the people that owe the money, whether it's a business or an individual, whether, you know, they want to make a payment plan. Sure. We'll accept your money because if they default on that payment plan, now they're funding the actual lawsuit against themselves, right? Why make the client pay their own money? to go collect this debt, let the debtor pay the legal funds. You agree? Well, sure. We get this situation a lot where, you know, you enter into a payment plan and everybody knows that at some point, whether it's two months, four months, a year from now, this debtor is going to default. They aren't going to pay the entire payment plan for the entire time period. But, you know, you got some money in the interim that you can then use to fund your additional efforts to collect beyond that. You know, what's the, the Seinfeld line? People don't turn down money. It's what separates us from the animals. If someone's offering to pay you say yes and worry about the fact that they'll default again later when that happens, I, I'd rather them default three months from now, but pay me $1,500 between now and then. Now, when they don't pay you, that's where I want to help people. So, Let's say you're owed money and boy, I'll tell you what, it's like property tax appeals, which maybe this audience isn't listening to, but the whole tax appeal system is very emotional for the homeowners. You're raising their taxes, right? The same thing is true when people call me and they're owed money and they're owed money or their business is owed money. I mean, the rage that this person, I did the work, they owe me $35,000 and they're not going to pay me. I mean, people want to resort to physical violence. Oh, and, and it's even worse in the cases where you're talking about someone who already has a judgment. They've gone to court. They've convinced the court that they're owed this money and they still haven't got it and they don't know what to do. 
the court says this guy owes me 25 grand and I have nothing. Well, and, and, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, understanding the nuts and bolts when, when somebody says, Hey, I'm owed money or these, this person owes me money. No, they don't legally owe you the money until you have what's called a judgment and you hit it, right? You said, how do I enforce the judgment? But before you even have that legal determination that yes, you know what? Legally, you are owed money. You have a judgment. You have to get a judgment. Help me explain, help people understand what a judgment is first. Sure. And there, there are different ways to go about getting a judgment. There are magistrate hearings or magistrate courts. There are the courts of common pleas in each of the various counties. Um, you know, federal courts end up with judgments too. But the basic definition here is a judgment is a kind of final finding of a court that establishes the party's rights. And specifically in the case of civil judgments, a right to payment. Prior to that point, you can have all the invoices in the world um, and you know, you can have a written contract and a promissory note and those things have value in and of themselves, right? You can negotiate a note, but what you don't have is a court ruling upon the validity of your note or your invoices. You can't collect on that as such. What you have to do is take that thing, go to court. And at the end of a trial or a default judgment, if the other side doesn't show up, there are ways, different ways procedurally of getting there. But, judgment signals finality. The court has now made a final ruling that you are owed this money. And once you've got that judgment in hand, now you can go and try to collect. I'm not going to bother to, there are ways after a judgment to go back and attack a judgment. Nothing is really final. You know, it's not over, not over till it's over. Um, But as kind of a, a bright line in your head, you go to trial, you win the trial, you get a verdict or whatever, that thing has to be converted and turned into a judgment. And then once you've got that judgment, now you can try to go get paid. Well, yeah. And let me follow up on that real quick. So I have a contract where you don't have a judgment. I went to the magistrates and I got an award. Well, that's not a judgment. I went to a jury trial and the jury, the the jury and the judge, they issued a verdict and the verdict said, this person owes me money. Okay. You still don't have a judgment. The judgment is a piece of paper that says to the court records, please enter judgment in my amount. And once that specific precipice for judgment, which is what it is called, is filed with the courts, then you have a judgment. All right. So step one of this entire process is you have to get the judgment. And a judgment is a, you can view it on a public docket. Now, wh- and, where do you, where do you get the judgment? Well, you know, when you think, so you win your case and you're in a specific county and there's 67 counties in Pennsylvania. A secret tip is that you need to record the judgment in every single county in which the defendant owns property because that acts as a lien. You can't just, if the defendant owns property in Westmoreland County and you have a judgment in Allegheny County, guess what? Your judgment in Allegheny County is not acting as a lien against the property of the defendant. Let me make a, a slightly technical objection. This is a non-strenuous objection. It is just an objection to correct the record here. Um, you should enter judgment in the county where the proceedings happened first, right? If I've got a verdict in Allegheny County or a magistrate award from a magistrate in Allegheny County, eventually you want to put that judgment into other counties. You can go enforce that judgment in other states. 
But the first thing you need to do is enter that judgment in that county, in that jurisdiction. Don't try to domesticate a judgment in Lackawanna County or in some county in Ohio when all you've got is a magistrate award and not a judgment you know, in Allegheny County first. And that works the other way, right? If, if you've obtained a judgment in another state, um, we often proceed against assets that are located here uh, in, in some particular county in Pennsylvania. But what we have to do is we have to get a copy of that judgment from the other state first and then bring it here. You don't want to have to relitigate the substance of the case county by county or in another place. You want to finalize that judgment in the place where the litigation already happened. And then once you've got that, full faith and credit requires that other states and that other counties respect the decision of that court and enforce it. Yep, I agree. So if step one, you're owed money, you have to get obtain the judgment. You're filing the judgment in the county where the proceedings happened. And that's a good point, Bill. Thank you. Now we're going to transfer the judgment to where any other counties where the defendant may own property. But let's say you get the judgment and the defendant now is saying, fuck me, well, fuck you. I'm not paying you. Come and get me, right? What's the first thing you're going to tell a client? What do I do? I got a judgment. I got a judgment for $100,000. The guy won't pay me. Owns two new cars, a boat. What can I do? Well, so one, filing the judgment itself does something to protect you already, which is it establishes a lien against any real property, not personal property. Real property just means real estate, right? Land, houses. Um, it's not a lien against anything else, but if I own land in that state, even if you never do anything else by filing a judgment, I've got a lien. I'm, I'm somewhere of record with some interest in this property. But if you want to do anything else, and we'll talk about what some of those other steps are to go after assets, then the next thing you have to do procedurally after filing the judgment itself is you have to seek a writ of execution, um, which is a, basically another document. It, it kind of is a document issued and served that signifies that we've moved to the next step of the proceedings, right? Where we, we now, though it's under the same kind of number, um, we are now in a position where we are actively litigating an execution proceeding on this judgment. So yeah, you're going to need, you need a writ of execution before you can do any of the next steps we're about to talk about. Yeah. How, how are we going to collect on the judgment here? But I think there's actually a decision for people to make creditors or plaintiffs or the people that are owed the money. So once they get the judgment, you have a decision that we can either immediately act and file this writ of execution, which is going to authorize the sheriff to go sell stuff so we can get paid. Or you can do what's called discovery in aid of execution, where the law allows you to send written questions to a debtor. Um, the law allows you to take depositions. Um, Bill? Well, yeah, I just want to note as far as the order of operations here, um, you actually need the writ of execution before you do discovery and aid of execution. I strenuously so. object. I strenuously object that you need a writ of, writ of execution before you can do discovery. If I have a judgment against you and, and I don't issue a writ of execution, it is my legal opinion that I can take your deposition in aid of execution without issuing a writ. There's no execution to be in aid of at that point. No, I'm, my, my understanding here, and look, people may show up anyway. Um, but if I am defending someone who's trying not to pay this debt and you start serving discovery on me without a writ of execution in place first, 
I may decide to play nice, but if I really want to be a jerk, I technically don't think I have to answer until a writ of execution is issued. So you think you can file an objection and say, I'm not answering this discovery until the actual writ of execution. I disagree. You want to make that argument in court, I think you lose. But let's move on. Let's assume you may or may not, depending on who you listen to, Yale, Bill, or myself, um, issue the writ of execution. The there is a discovery process that can be done. And that discovery process can ask debtors, and we've done it you know, for all of your banking information for the last three years, your tax returns for the last three years. Do you own any firearms? What jewelry do you own? How about your investment accounts? I mean, you can get pretty deep. It's a, you know, it's a forensic exam of the defendant's wealth and assets. And there's two ways to do it, written and then through an actual requirement that they attend their deposition, which you can also film and require them to bring documents. Your thoughts on the discovery process? The discovery process, I mean, it, it works here and there. It does. And it's a useful way to gain information. You got to figure out where the assets are. And it's the same type of discovery process that you'll have earlier in litigation, right? If I'm in a car accident, um, I get to do a, a discovery. I can do a deposition of the other person involved in the accident and ask them, okay, where were you coming from that day? Where were you going to that day? What did you see as you approached the intersection? Um, it's the same process. It's just now the matter at issue is where are your assets? How are you making your money? How are you spending your money? Where do you bank? How are you paying your bills? What's in, what's in your attic? What's in your garage? Um, the tough thing about discovery and native execution. There is no place among all the depositions we do where I am convinced that people just lie to us more than in discovery and aid of execution. People just show up in there and lie through their teeth about where their money is and what they do. Yeah. If you, if you, if you think people lie in real life and you think, well, of course they lie in litigation, people would be, uh, would be overwhelmed at the amount of times that witnesses just lie without repercussions in the legal system. I mean, it's pretty bad. Um, here's a practice tip. And here's why I like noticing a deposition in aid of execution. You owe me money. I'm going to notice your deposition. I'm going to require you to bring your tax returns, your bank statements, and every asset you've ever owned in the last five years or any creditors you have. Most of those debtors, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with this. You may already have a default judgment. They're not paying you. They're not going to be involved in the lawsuit. And then they don't show so they just don't show up. They say, oh, screw you, I'm not showing up. But what I like when that happens is then I file a motion to compel when I require them to attend. And the judge says, okay, they didn't show. They have to show up in 30 days. They don't show again. Then I go back to the court and I say, judge, they haven't showed twice now. I need sanctions. I need $500. Judge says, okay. They still don't show. And he requires them to show in seven days. At that point, though, what I've done, and it's been very effective, and I, I look at it as a strategy of being clever on how to collect money, is I say, you know what, Judge, this person is so non-compliant that I need a, 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 an order issuing contempt, and I want you to issue the sheriff of Allegheny County to go arrest them and bring them to my office with all of their papers. And that usually scares the shit out of them, right? Because now it's not debtor's prison, but you didn't pay. You're not answering. I'm going to take you to jail. Right. I, and I was going to say there, there isn't debtor's prison, right? We don't, we don't have that system anymore. Um, but, you know, there are repercussions for just consistently refusing to cooperate with the, the, the courts that are the law of the land. You, you eventually, you, you have to show up. You have to actually honestly answer the questions presented to you. And 
you know, there's a lot of debtors out there who just refuse to cooperate. Like, you know, and it's, I don't know if it's psychological denial, right? If, if I don't go there and deal with it, then this debt isn't real. Well, eventually you're going to get, you know, you're going to get pulled over uh, for, uh, for rolling through a stop sign. And they're going to realize that there's a warrant out there for you, a bench warrant that orders the police to bring you before the judge um, so that your deposition can get scheduled so that you can, the, the person who is owed money can actually find out the necessary information. Um, you know, free, free advice um, to the debtors out there, show up for your depositions, yeah. um, you know, show up and be honest. Um, but, you know, no showing will eventually lead to some, some pretty nasty consequences. So I got a great deposition in aid of execution story. This guy, this guy owes money and I take his deposition. This is years ago in, in our office. This guy's huge, mean looking, wants, no, wants to beat the shit out of me. And I mean, it's kind of scary. And he's lying through his, no, 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 doesn't have anything, doesn't have anything. I'm like, well, how did you, no vehicles. I was like, what do you drive? I don't. I was like, well, how did you get here today? Um, and I forget what he said, but the deposition wraps up and it's very contentious. I mean, I'm fortunately with COVID, we do a lot of these Zoom now, which I think is better, but um, I decide I'm gonna follow him. I wanna see how he got to our office in Shadyside. So he walks outside the office and I'm like 20 yards behind this guy. And this guy's looking at me like, and he eventually confronted me about halfway down the block in Shadyside. And um, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, buddy, I'm just taking a walk. I'm just taking a walk. I followed him for 15 or 20 minutes. Finally, he goes to his car. It was obvious he wasn't going to his car. I write, I don't think I even had a cell phone at the time. I write down his license plate. And eventually I think we did get paid on that. I don't know if it was from the car itself which is kind of psychotic to do, right? I'm not advising lawyers to do that, but it shows you that you need to be aggressive. <laughs> you need to be clever. You need to be street smart. When we say, fuck you, pay me, Goodfellows is all about, those guys were street smart because they wanted to collect the money. Fair? Fair. It's quite the risk you took, right? You, you don't know this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, you followed him. Who knows? He gets to his car and he comes out with a firearm. Well, that was before everybody shot everybody, I think. You know, these days, everybody just shoots everybody and there's a more of acceptance of rage, so to speak. All right. We got the judgment. We may or may not do some discovery and aid, aid of execution, right? You, we, now you got to issue the writ of execution. Let's say you find out the guy has assets. How are we going to get them? I always say the writ of execution is your key. That is the key, the magic pass, the golden ticket that you give to the sheriff and it allows them to go set a sheriff's sale. Because a sheriff sale is a two-step process. They visit the defendant's assets. They put them on a piece of paper. They list them on the levy sheet. And they set a sale date. Um, and we've gone through this. And I, we've had some good stories. You want to have some stories. You know, back in the day with National Recovery Corporation, Fred Fershing. Right? I'm giving a shout out to Fred Fershing. What a great guy. He ran a collection agency we used to do with sheriff sales. Um, you really haven't practiced law until you've attended a sheriff sale and you're taking people's assets out of the restaurants. Let me, let me pause you here for a second. Sure. Um, sheriff sale is kind of a, a, a term of art here that people have probably heard, but usually in a different context, right? There, there's two kinds of sheriff sales. Can you tell us about that? Well, are you, are you talking about a sheriff sale of personal assets versus a sheriff sale of real property? 
Well, yeah, exactly. Right. All people have heard of sheriff sales and what they're thinking of is that place where you go to buy distressed properties. Um, that's not the kind of sheriff sale you're talking about right now. Well, that's good. That's good, Bill. All right. So yeah, there are two different kinds of sheriff sales. You know, once a month in most counties in Pennsylvania, they sell real estate that has judgments against them. That can be a house with land or just land and people bid on it and it's a separate sheriff sale. But what I'm talking about is you can also do a writ of execution against personal assets and bank accounts, which is really the best, I think, fastest way to get paid. If you have banking information, you can seize that bank account um, by sending a writ of execution to the bank. If they have a nice car, you can send the sheriff by giving them the key, the writ of execution, send them to the house and they can levy on the car and they can set a date. They can also, on a, in instances of a car, if you pay them extra, tow it that day, which we've done before as well. I mean, it sounds kind of ruthless, but fuck you, pay me. Well, so from an organizational standpoint, we've kind of, uh, we've kind of merged uh, a couple of the steps here. So I want to, I want to back up and talk specifically about uh, first, how it is that one seizes a bank account, because I agree, right? The easiest way to collect money, if you actually know where someone does their banking and there's actual assets in there is to seize their bank account. It is fast. It is quick and it works. Uh, tell us about that process. Yeah. I mean, the, the bank account and, you know, some of this is technical, the Pennsylvania rules of civil procedure. I'm not trying to shoo away business, but if you Googled Pennsylvania rules of civil procedure and you read about the judgment and you read about the writ of execution, there's another segment also called interrogatories in aid of execution. And, interrogatories are simply questions. And these questions, interrogatories in aid of execution are questions to the bank. And they actually, the rules of civil procedure lay out, here are the 11 questions that you can ask a bank. So you don't even have to, it's not being a lawyer, it's simply knowing the procedure following the rules. But the Pennsylvania does a good job of showing you the documents exactly that you need to fill out so you're not guessing or having to hire a lawyer. They give you That's the right. information. And then a key, a key legal term just to flag for our listeners out there is the word garnishee. And again, this is a thing people are mostly used to in a different context, right? They'll talk about garnishing wages, um, which in some states you can do for civil judgments. In Pennsylvania, you cannot garnish wages with very limited exceptions. Um, but the word garnishment just means basically you're, what you're doing is you're stepping in, in between the debtor and someone who owes the debtor money. So when you talk about wage garnishment, what you're doing is stepping into that moment before the employer pays the employee and saying, hold on, I know you owe this person money, but this person owes me money. So now you have to pay me directly. Uh, banks get treated like a garnishee in the same way. The bank has an account. That money is money that is properly speaking owed to the person who owns the bank account. But what you can do is if you have successfully followed these procedures, you can treat the bank as a garnishee and step in and say, hey, bank, that you owe this person money. You have to pay me instead because they owe me. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, you can not only do it with a bank, but you can do it if the, if the defendant is a landlord and is owed money by other people. Well, guess what? You can send interrogatories to garnishees. Or if somebody owes the debtor money, let's say he won a lawsuit against somebody else and somebody else owes him, you can claim those proceeds. So it's not just money he has, it's any money or he or she has, or the company has, it's any money that is owed to that debtor from any third party source. You can garnish that money by issuing a writ of execution 
and sending interrogatories to the garnishee. That's right. But the banks, the banks are the best garnishees. Best um, banks are the best. Because you serve these interrogatories directed to a garnishee to the bank, and they're just questions, right? You're just sending the bank questions. And as soon as they receive them, if there's an account with more than $300 or whatever the, the cutoff is right now in it, they freeze the account. Um, the person can't do banking anymore until they resolve this situation. It gets us a lot of calls. It works a lot of deals out um, where someone comes in and says, well, hold on. You know, I, my bank account just got frozen. My pay went in there. I can't pay any of my other expenses. What do we have to do to get my bank account open back up? Well, Fuck you, pay me. That's what we have to do um, to to get the to get the bank account open back up. Yeah, we seem like real assholes. You know that. Well, the thing is, collecting a debt um, really is um, it's a job for maniacs and assholes, right? Those are the <laughs> things that make you good at this: is being willing to follow a guy down the street to see where his car is, or you know, and like you don't have to be unreasonable, right? We've let people pay less than the whole amount and open the bank account back up because in the end, you know, we just want to get paid. Um, yeah. We're not out to ruin your life. We're just out to make sure that our clients who have a genuine court adjudicated right and interest have that right and interest protected. And the law has other, other rules in place to, to protect the banks. There's minimum exemptions. And, you know, if you're married and it's a joint bank account, I can't freeze it for an individual debt. So, you know, John Smith owes me money. You know, John and Maggie have an account together. I can't touch that account. Yeah. I mean, it circles back and there, there are difficulties in collection, which we can touch, touch upon, but you know, be nice, be nice, be nice until it's time not to be nice and then get the judgment, then issue the writ of execution. You can go after, you can go after bank accounts, which that's the number one way that I've been paid over the years is seizing bank accounts and people panicking and saying, wait a second, I got $35,000 in there. I only owe your client 7,000. I said, okay, great. You pay us the seven. I'll call the bank today and open it up for you. How's that sound? Right? So just, but you can, I, I want to stop and acknowledge you gave us some roadhouse there, didn't you? I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. Roadhouse. Um, if I did it subconsciously, <laughs> PM, what do you got for us? You know, if someone owed me money, I would want the lawyer that I hired to be kind of a relentless asshole. That's what I would want. Well, and you know, and I think in Bill and ours, eyes, Bill and I's, ours case, Bill, help me there, maybe. But uh, no, you are on an island here, my friend. You're drowning yeah, in grammar. I mean, I, you know, it's the ultimate paradox that we, yes, I think we're just naturally ultimate assholes but also very nice guys. So it works both ways. Can I mean, look, a little bit I, each? My, my typical answer to why I became a lawyer is I was naturally disposed to be an argumentative jerk. I just found a career where that's an asset. <laughs> See, I, I didn't have the argumentative. I just had the asshole. Damn it. All right. Um, just in terms of the layout, have we helped people in terms of you got to get the judgment. You can do different things. You can do discovery. You can execute in various ways. You can sell real property. Any other major practice tidbits that you have for people to help them? Well, the main thing is you had mentioned this idea of a personal property sheriff sale, but you still haven't told us like what goes on at that or, or how that works. Yeah. So, and that's good. And let, let me try to roll through this kind of quickly. Right. But let's say we get a judgment and we issue a writ of execution and our choices are the bank or real property or personal property. Let's go with personal property. 
I send a, a business owes my client $100,000. I issue the writ of execution. The sheriff has the key to go to this site and conduct a levy. And what they do is they send out several sheriffs and they gain entry. And sometimes they're not allowed entry where the guy says, no, I'm shutting the door. You're not coming in. And in that case, the sheriff is not allowed in at that point. We have to do then a motion to break and enter, <laughs> which is allowing, and we have to post a bond. So if there's damage, the bond covers it. We've had to do that many times. Um, it's not an unusual step of the process, but let's say once the sheriff gains entry, whether it's voluntarily or through a motion to break and enter, the sheriff then gets his notepad out and takes a complete inventory of everything at the defendant's location. Two Zenith TVs, one cash register, 54 tables and chairs. Um, have you been through that process? Yeah, so I have. Uh, I remember specifically going along uh, with the sheriff to, to do a levy at a, a closed pizza shop. And I mean, we went through there and got the serial numbers of every piece of equipment in that restaurant. I mean, the place had closed down, but there were a ton of assets in there. Now, we weren't sure, and it ended up a lot of those may have been the property of some other people. We didn't have an absolute right to every piece of equipment in there, but the only way we could figure out what things we could sell and what things we couldn't was to go through and specifically uh, write down and keep track of exactly what all of the pizza ovens and cash registers and everything in that place was. Yeah. And uh, another practice tip here, you got to be as nice as you can to the sheriff's office, because as much as a client needs you, we need the sheriff to be, Hey, go do your job. And they do a real good job, but there are sheriffs that are more aggressive and will take, be more detailed. And if you have established a relationship with that deputy, Usually they want to work for you more. At least that's what I've experienced. Okay. So the sheriff goes in there and levies. What happens after that? Once they take a levy, they will post that levy sale at the sheriff's office and issue a sheriff sale date. And they'll say, we took all the inventory of this restaurant and we're going to set a, sh a sheriff sale date uh, 30 days from now. Well, very few people see these. Very few people are aware of the sheriff sale date, like they are when there's a real when there's a real property sale that happens at a scheduled date and time every month, and people can see the list of 250 properties. Um, yeah, so you've you've seen there. I forget what the name of the show was, Storage Wars or something. Yeah, um, where what they were doing was this sort of sheriff sale, but they were doing it at these offsite storage facilities. Someone has a uh, a storage box or unit that they stop paying for, and so you know, easy self storage or whoever it is has given them notice and got a judgment. And now they've got an authorization to go ahead and sell the assets in the, um, in these storage units. Now I think those they're just selling blind. The sheriff isn't going through and levying what's there. There's not uh, a levy in those. That's right. Right. But the point is, you know, there is a sale. And in this case, the sale occurs at the location where the physical property is. This isn't like going to, the county courthouse for the sheriff sales of real estate or tax sales of property. This is on a random date that's published, you know, officially, but not well distributed. And the sale occurs physically at the location in question on some random morning or afternoon. That's Mr. Douchebag to you. Yeah, a couple other things. Once that levy is made, the defendant or the debtor is not allowed to move those assets. 
If they move those assets, because there's going to be a delay between the time the levy is made and the sale is done, they can be arrested. It's a crime. Once the sale's set and you can have bidders show up and bidders can bid on items at the sale, that's paid to you until your judgment amount is collected. So whatever the items sell for, that money is placed towards the money that you're owed. And once you collect the judgment amount, the sale stops. Sometimes now, there's usually, usually not enough assets for that. But Now, all that being said, the way these things the way these things actually work most of the time is you go to the sheriff's sale. Nobody shows up at the sheriff's sale except you. And congratulations, you now own all this stuff oh. that, was, that was in this restaurant or home. And you can sell it to try to make your money back or whatever. Um, but that is the usual process. So, you know, it, sometimes, and especially if you're you know, if you're really liquidating the assets of a, a business that has a lot of valuable stuff, there's someone else, usually someone else who's also owed money who finds out about the sale and they show up and they bid too. Um, but most, most sheriff sales for personal property, um, at least that, that I've been involved with, it's you and the sheriff and you're the only people who show up. Yeah. So look, I mean, my first advice to clients is always seize the bank account. You got the judgment, seize the bank account. My second advice is always go after real property because we know there's going to be hundreds of bidders at the sheriff sale. The third option of using the sheriff to go sell all of their shit is really just a pressure move. I'm applying pressure by the sheriff going out there, taking a levy, putting the fear in them. And then, you know, depending, hey, look, we still want to work this out. I want to be nice. I want to get you to voluntarily pay me pay us. So I'm keeping all options open. Um, you also picked a really interesting example, right? If I, if I go here and, you know, Chekhov's gun is among the assets that, that is being sold to me here. Um, there's a ton of interesting stuff out there about uh, with gun ownership laws and registration, um, how you would actually have to go about doing that to protect yourself. And I think, I remember looking at this at one point that some sort of temporary custody by a lawyer um, is kind of permitted and, and, and backlogged into that just to allow the, the lawyer to kind of hold it until actual stuff can be done. Um, but just to kind of flag that, boy, there's a whole can of worms there in, in the example of this old gun that you mentioned that we are not getting into today, but, but maybe some other time. Um, I, I do think that your approach makes sense and we'll get to the, the, sheriff sale of real estate that people might be more familiar with momentarily, but think about it in terms of where are the repositories of assets, right? One of which might be real estate that I own. There's a process for sheriff selling that. One of which might be bank accounts. One of which might be money that other people other than banks owe you. Those are the garnishes we talked about. One of them might be a physical location where personal assets are kept. That's what this sheriff sale addresses. And then there's also um, kind of movable assets um, where you can get levies on those or try to get them sold as well. And you kind of have to treat them in isolation. So a couple examples there that I want to talk about just quickly here, because um, they're kind of, they're, they're both interesting, right? One of those, a common one is vehicles. Um, oftentimes vehicles aren't kept on the physical premises. So when the sheriff comes to do a levy, if it's a house with a garage or a big piece of real estate with vehicles in the back fenced in, right? You're it's a construction company. Those vehicles get wrapped into the standard sheriff's levy um, of personal property at a location. But oftentimes, because vehicles are mobile, 
Um, you have to find those and chase those and eventually seize those separately. Um, one time, and you, you had, you had mentioned um, Fred earlier. Uh, I was, I was, we were working a case. Um, he was able to get us a tow truck and kind of arrange to repossess a vehicle. We found a car. So we had an address. We knew they owned a vehicle. We found the vehicle records that showed that there was a car there. Um, they owned it outright. One thing to note, if someone owes a judgment, but they owe payments on their vehicle, right? The, the financing company has priority over you. You don't get to go seize their car and, and keep it like, you know, whatever bank lent the money for that car, uh, they get it first. But in any case, you know, this was, this was in my, my young scrappy and hungry days. Right. And, uh, I went with a car into this neighborhood and, and drove around and found the car and parked a block away and across the street and was looking at it diagonally. And I was on a stakeout because, you know, Fred was in West Virginia at the time. I had to wait for the tow truck to get there. And at some point as I'm checking in and he's halfway there to come tow the car, someone comes out, gets in the car and drives away. Now I'm following him. You know, I'm, you know, I'm driving, I'm driving. I feel like Kramer, you're still made all the stocks? Well, people kept pulling the string. Um, you know, they just went to the store and came back, but I was trying not to be seen following them. So, you know, they went on this excursion and I was driving a block away and seeing when they stopped turning up and then followed them back. Um, and we did, we towed the car and uh, stored it at a local garage or dealership or whatever. I don't remember exactly where we took it. Um, but I was on this shady evening stakeout driving, following this car around a local neighborhood. Um, yeah, it was something else. Good times, man. Good times. You know, the two things about vehicles that you said, though, is one, you know, same vehicles and planes, they have a title number and that allows you, which you can ascertain exact ownership through the Department of State Records. And you need to verify whether there's liens. You don't want to go seize and pay to tow a car that's worth $5,000 that has a $6,000 lien on it. So, you know, that all filters back into the discovery once you obtain the judgment. And, and um, possessing vehicles in particular is a very uh, kind of statutory and administratively complex process. You have to follow all the steps right. Don't go out there self-helping and saying, well, this guy owes me some money. I'm taking his car. Yeah, congratulations. That's Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. So let me give the best advice. You think it's too early to give the best advice I've ever given in a debt collection matter? Um, yeah, you can go ahead and give it. It works together with the last point. Okay. So the best advice ever is once you get the judgment and you try discovery and you issued writ of, writ of executions and you still can't collect, is there anything else that you can do? And the answer is yes. You need to revive the judgment every five years because, and this is, this is the number one thing that people miss. And it is, it is, I've seen so many clients get paid years later simply by reviving the judgment. Reviving the judgment in Pennsylvania means once you filed your judgment, that judgment gives you a high priority for five years. But if you revive that judgment, which is a separate legal pleading, which is filed, you retain your priority. And just last month, Bill, we had a judgment from 2004. So it's 16 years old. We kept reviving it. We revived it in 09. 2013, 2018, we stayed on it for 16 years. We got $100,000. I mean, these clients are thrilled because we don't go away. Alive, it's alive, it's alive. Just because someone doesn't have any money now doesn't mean they never will. 
I had mentioned earlier that generally you can't get it marital property, right? So one of the reasons you might hit a dead end in your collection process is, so for example, you can do a sheriff sale to effectuate your lien against real estate. But if a married couple owns the property jointly and you have a judgment against only one member of that married couple, you can't do that sheriff sale. Um, you don't get to sell the real property. And, and I know we've talked about it in passing, if you can verify that the person who owes you money owns real estate in their own name that is sufficiently valuable, that is 100% the best way to go collect. It's expensive, and you don't want to do it unless you're sure that at the end of the day, the property is worth enough and the property is relatively unencumbered. Um, you know, Do that search and find out. But okay, let's find out that maybe the property is marital and I can't touch it, or maybe there's a big mortgage on it, or this person just doesn't have any money and I've got a judgment and I've tried to collect. And, you know, I, other than trying to do a sheriff's sale and steal their dressers and clothes, there's nothing else I can do to get paid. Okay. Except, re except revive the judgment. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. So you've reached that dead end. That's all right. Every five years, keep reviving that judgment. People's life circumstances change. Maybe the married person is now divorced. Now their assets are seizable. Uh, or maybe one of a married couple passes away um, and now the assets are seizable. Maybe someone hits the lottery or gets a better job, whatever it is. And the nice thing about reviving the judgment, as mentioned, a judgment acts as a lien against real estate uh, automatically. When you revive that judgment, you revive that lien, you keep your priority order. Um, you have to be paid out based on the time that you end in your judgment. If there's a second mortgage that comes in after the judgment, you're ahead of that second mortgage company in the priority order. So the way that reviving judgments usually gets you paid is seven years or 11 years or whatever after the judgment, someone is trying to sell their property and you've got to lean against it. And now they need to satisfy that lien to let this sale go through. And it's a problem. Um, yeah. I would also throw in there, every time you revive the judgment, I do new discovery. So I continually have not just three years of tax returns, but we'll have six, seven, 10 years of tax returns on the same individual. We'll truly get to see whether their life circumstances have changed. All right, let's wrap this up. Um, I think we help people today. I think if your business is owed money, if you're owed money, if the goal is getting paid, you have to apply pressure. You have to be crafty. You got to be strategic. You got to be persistent. You let people pay you voluntarily if they, if they can. Let them fund their own lawsuits against them. But if they can't, then you need to litigate. You need to get the judgment. You need to do discovery. You need to issue rid of executions. And the primary assets that you can go after in Pennsylvania are their bank accounts first. Their real property second, which is their houses and land, and then their personal assets third. You agree? I agree. And look, the goal here is getting paid, right? So a lot of the art in this, in addition to just like being willing to be uh, a jerk who's willing to go aggressively after people, that's not always the right play, right? There's a lot of judgment um, and experience and, and um, kind of subtlety involved in knowing when it's time to be nice, right? The, the roadhouse line from earlier, knowing when it's time to be nice and when it's time not to be nice, because there's a time for both. You know, it, it is not one size fits all. You should not go aggressively full bore after every debtor everywhere. You don't want to force them into bankruptcy if that's not going to get you paid, right? There's a lot of subtlety involved in the right way to do that, but you need to have that gear. 
Um, sometimes it is time to just say, hey, I, you know, life circumstances are tough. Fuck you pay me. You pay me. All right. That should do it for this episode of I Strenuously Object. I think you've had enough. Mike, anything to add from your end? Thanks, Bill. Hi, Mike, the podcast producer here. And in fact, yes, I uh, have a correction to our previous show. So, okay. as that I hope you guys makes know, me nervous. I, so as I as I hope you guys know, I I take my job very seriously. After we record these things, I edit them and thoroughly check them for errors before we post them. But it looks like Noah, you made a small factual error on a recent podcast, and it went undetected. It slipped through. I'm sorry. I take full responsibility, and I'd like to correct it now. My my initial reaction is f you. <laughs> Well, look, we have a disclaimer for a reason, right? This is not legal advice. You should not rely on it. So hopefully no one relied on whatever it is you did wrong. Uh, it's, it's not a legal error. It was an error in a film reference you made. That's unsurprising. In our first case or no case, which is posted in our podcast library, you can go find it there. You quote Field of Dreams and said, it's baseball, Roy. <laughs> the actual quote... <laughs> By Darth Vader himself, James Earl Jones, is the one constant through all the years, Ray, is baseball. Not Roy. There's Which no I, Roy. Yeah, and I'd enjoy hearing that right now. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. It is baseball, Ray. It is baseball. And that's a wrap for this episode of I Strenuously Object. Hopefully you learned something or had a few laughs or got some value of some kind from our time together. Look, if so, please subscribe, rate, review us, tell your friends about our podcast or your enemies. Um, it's the only way this thing can grow. Um, if you have any questions for our mailing it in mailbag segment or other feedback for the podcast, email the podcast directly. That address is I object at pghfirm.com. Hey, thanks, Bill. The only thing I'll add is if you want to show me the money, check out pghfirm.com and look for the article, The Five Best Steps on How to Collect Debt in Pennsylvania. Until next time, some parting advice. Stop breaking the law, asshole! Noah, are we adjourned? We are adjourned. Have a great day. We want to hear from you, our listeners. You can email us your questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes at iobject at pghfirm.com. Or DM us on Instagram and Facebook. Follow us at Flaherty Fardo on Instagram or Flaherty Fardo Rogel and Amick on Facebook.